Section 12 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Warren Cotty, Gurney, Illinois. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1, Section 12 b the plumbers another in-house investigative arm of the white house quote, the plumbers unquote, conducted political as well as national security related investigations during its existence in 1971 this report will not attempt to detail all facets of the plumbers actions excluded for example are david young's declassification program the investigation into the salt talk leaks the radford investigation and responsibilities for retracing u s policy stands in southeast asia for the then ongoing peace negotiations however the investigation by the plumbers of daniel ellsberg was reviewed by the committee primarily because of the political implications inherent in that investigation and its relationship to the cover-up the following facts develop the origin and motivations of the ellsberg assignment on june thirteenth nineteen seventy one the new york times published the first of a three-part series of what came to be known as quote, the pentagon papers unquote. president nixon viewed this breach of national security with the utmost gravity as the president related in his may twenty second nineteen seventy three address to the nation therefore during the week following the pentagon papers publication i approved the creation of a special investigative unit within the white house which later came to be known as the plumbers this was a small group at the white house whose principal purpose was to stop security leaks and to investigate other sensitive security matters the president went on to explain the choice of daniel ellsberg as a target of the plumbers investigation at about this time the unit was created daniel ellsberg was identified as the person who had given the pentagon papers to the new york times i told mr crow that as a matter of first priority the unit should find out all it could on his motives because of the extreme gravity of the situation and not knowing then what additional national secrets mr ellsberg might disclose I did impress upon Mr. Crow the vital importance to the national security of his assignment. I did not authorize and had no knowledge of any illegal means to be used to achieve this goal. David Young and John Ehrlichman have also testified about the seriousness of the national security leaks leading to the creation of the plumbers. Supervision of this, quote, national security assignment of the utmost gravity, unquote, was first offered to Pat Buchanan, a presidential speechwriter, on July 6, 1971. Buchanan testified that his White House responsibilities consisted of political and public relations-related tasks, speechwriting, daily news summaries, and preparation for press briefings. The Ellsberg assignment was, in Buchanan's own words, quote, a waste of my time and my abilities, unquote. At about this same time, a low-key group to handle domestic and intragovernmental problems with leaks was also created in the White House, with Fred Malik in charge. 
supervisory responsibilities for the plumbers ultimately fell on presidential assistant john d ehrlichman with help from charles colson ehrlichman's assistant eagle bud crow jr and former kissinger aide david young were given operational responsibility for the project which employed both e howard hunt and g gordon liddy prior to his being hired hunt had a telephone conversation with charles colson about the ellsberg matter part of that conversation was the following colson let me ask you this howard this question do you think with the right resources employed that this thing could be turned into a major public case against ellsberg and co-conspirators hunt yes i do but you've established a qualification here that i don't know whether it can be met colson what's that hunt well with the proper resources colson well i think the resources are there hunt well i would say so absolutely colson then your answer would be we should go down the line to nail the guy cold hunt go down the line to nail the guy cold yes colson and that at this point the profit to us is in nailing any son of a bitch who would steal a secret document of the government and publish it or would conspire to steal hunt or aid and assist in it colson and that the case now can be made on the grounds where i don't see that we could lose hunt it has to be made on criminal grounds and colson it also has to be this case won't be tried in the court it will be tried in the newspapers so it's going to take some resourceful engineering to hunt added later in the conversation quote, i want to see the guy hung if it can be done to the advantage of the administration unquote. colson had earlier commented quote, we might be able to put this bastard into a hell of a situation and discredit the new left unquote. with colson's recommendation hunt was subsequently hired to work in the plumbers group on July 9, 1971, Hunt and Colson telephoned retired CIA agent Lucien Conin. According to Hunt, Colson used the alias, quote, Fred Charles, unquote, and they attempted to elicit from Conin derogatory information about Ellsberg's activities in Vietnam. Then on July 28, 1971, Hunt wrote a memo to Charles Colson which detailed an operational plan for, quote, neutralization of Ellsberg, unquote. The objective of the memo was to determine, quote, how to destroy his public image and creditability, unquote. Hunt proposed seeking CIA assistance in performing, quote, a covert psychological assessment slash evaluation on Ellsberg, unquote. However, Eagle Crow and David Young were also concerned about Ellsberg's public image. They acknowledged the suggestion to obtain Ellsberg's psychiatric files in Hunt's quote, neutralization unquote, memorandum in their August 3, 1971 memorandum to Charles Colson. In the meantime, as noted earlier, Hunt received disguise material from the CIA. CIA equipment and assistance in developing a psychological profile of Ellsberg overstepped the agency's legal bounds by being involved with domestic intelligence gathering and internal security. When it was determined that the initial CIA psychological profile was inadequate, 
a quote, covert operation unquote, was recommended to supplement the initial profile this covert operation led to the break-in at ellsberg's psychiatrist's office interestingly according to hunt the psychiatrist's office had been pinpointed through what hunt believed might have been fbi wiretaps made available to the plumbers on august 11 1971 crow and young wrote to ehrlichman we would recommend that a covert operation be undertaken to examine all the medical files still held by Ellsberg's psychoanalyst, covering the two-year period in which he was undergoing analysis. Ehrlichman approved the recommendation with the qualification of, quote, if done under your assurance that it is not traceable, unquote. Ehrlichman maintained, however, that he had no specific prior knowledge of the fielding break-in, his explanation of what he envisioned as the, quote, covert operation, unquote, offered the following alternatives. Now, if you are asking me whether this means that I had in my contemplation that there was going to be a breaking and entering, I certainly did not. I heard a remark by a member of the committee to the effect that there are only two ways that one can see a medical file, and that is either to get the doctor to violate his oath or to break or enter. Well, I know that is not so, and I imagine those of you who have been in private practice well recognize there are a lot of perfectly legal ways that medical information is leaked, if you please. And when I saw this, that is the thing that occurred to me, that by one way or another this information could be adduced by an investigator who was trained and who knew what he was looking for. Ehrlichman also offered a national security defense to the overall Ellsberg assignment in his testimony before the Select Committee. Ellsberg noted that a psychiatric profile would be invaluable in determining whether we were dealing here with a spy ring or just an individual kook, or whether we were dealing with a serious penetration of the nation's military and other secrets, in such an uncertain situation that a profile of this kind might, certainly not positively, but might add some important additional ingredients which would help to understand the dimensions of the problem. Ehrlichman, however, testified that he did not approve of an actual break-in to Dr. Fielding's office. In addition, David Young has testified that there were legitimate national security considerations for obtaining Ellsberg's psychiatric file. E. Howard Hunt, however, testified that from the beginning, the Ellsberg assignment had strong political and public relations overtones. When asked what was to be done with the derogatory information about Ellsberg collected by Hunt and the other plumbers, Hunt replied, My assumption was that it would be made available by Mr. Colson or someone in his confidence to selected members of the media. Ehrlichman's role in orchestrating this political use of the media emerges in his approval of the August 26, 1971, memorandum to him from David Young. The last question put to Ehrlichman by Young in the memorandum was, quote, 9. How quickly do you want to try to bring a change in Ellsberg's image? Unquote. David Young, who also testified about the national security need for the psychiatric file, added, in connection with Issue 9, it is important to point out that with the recent article on Ellsberg's lawyer, Bodin, we have already started on a negative press image for Ellsberg. 
if the present hunt slash liddy project number one is successful it will be absolutely essential to have an overall game plan developed for its use in conjunction with the congressional investigation i mentioned these points to colson earlier this week and his reply was that we should just leave it to him and he would take care of getting the information out i believe however that in order to orchestrate this whole operation we have to be aware of precisely what colson wants to do Ehrlichman responded to this information the following day in a memorandum to Charles Colson. On the assumption that the proposed undertaking by Hunt and Liddy would be carried out and would be successful, I would appreciate receiving from you by next Wednesday a game plan as to how and when you believe the materials should be used. The allusion in the earlier young memorandum to, quote, the recent article on Ellsberg's lawyer, unquote, referred to one of Colson's attempts to discredit Ellsberg and those around him in the press. Using FBI files, Howard Hunt developed a profile on Ellsberg's attorney, Leonard Bowden. Hunt took the materials to Colson and says he told him, I find Bowden's name cropping constantly in these FBI reports. Describe Bowden or his long background of associations with the extreme left, to put it mildly, and said I felt we had enough material here on him to put together an article of sorts. Colson and I certainly discussed it, because then the name Jerry Terhorst came into play. Hunt testified that Colson gave the materials developed by Hunt to Terhorst, a Detroit News reporter. Some months later, an article appeared in the Detroit News on the Ellsberg Defense Fund, and the attorneys involved, including Bowden, although Terhorst denied that Hunt's information was the basis for his article. White House resources were thus used to develop and disseminate derogatory material concerning Ellsberg as part of a negative public relations campaign against the administration's political opponents. C. Investigation of the Brookings Institution From its early days in office, the Nixon administration was concerned about what President Nixon, in Patrick Buchanan's words, felt was the, quote, institutionalized power of the left, concentrated in the foundations that succor the Democratic Party, unquote. The Brookings Institution, an influential nonprofit public policy center in Washington, D.C., was of particular interest to Buchanan and others in the administration. In a March 3, 1970 memorandum to the President, Buchanan suggested that the administration encourage and assist the establishment of a Republican conservative counterpart to Brookings, which can generate the ideas Republicans can use, which can serve as a repository of conservative and Republican intellectuals the way Brookings and others do for the Democrats. Although Buchanan envisioned no more than directing, quote, future funds away from the hostile foundations like Brookings, unquote, other presidential aides apparently envisioned stronger tactics. During the summer of 1971, Jack Caulfield testified that he and Charles Colson discussed a possible, quote, investigation, unquote, of Leslie Gelb, then at the Brookings Institution, and formerly a consultant to the National Security Council. Colson, like others in the White House, was concerned about the recent leak of the Pentagon Papers, 
and he had read that brookings was planning a study of vietnam based upon quote, documents of a current nature unquote. according to caulfield colson wanted him to burglarize the institution to determine whether through gelb's former nsc associations the institution had a copy of the papers caulfield remembered his conversation with colson as follows mr colson called me into his office which was a rather unusual procedure in and of itself because i did not work for mr colson indicated he had had discussions with people he did not identify in the presidential party out in san clemente and stated that there was a high priority need to obtain papers from the office of a gentleman named leslie gelb who apparently worked at the brookings institute in washington and mr colson indicated that he thought i could in some fashion obtain those papers and i stated to mr colson how do you propose that i obtain these papers in substance the suggestion was that the fire regulations in the district of columbia could be changed to have the fbi respond to a fire and obtain the file in question from mr leslie gelb's office to caulfield the clear implication was to firebomb the institution caulfield left colson's office and testified that he quote, literally ran into the office of mr dean and advised him that if he was not going to take the next plane out to san clemente i was unquote. caulfield told dean that he thought colson's instructions were quote, insane unquote. dean agreed and he flew immediately to california to quote, tell ehrlichman this entire thing was insane unquote. dean and ehrlichman met at san clemente according to dean ehrlichman agreed that the plan was unwise and called colson and told him to drop the idea ehrlichman remembers meeting with dean on the subject and calling someone but he cannot remember whom he called dean then called caulfield to tell him the plan had been squelched although caulfield testified that colson later told caulfield the idea was only a joke caulfield dean and ehrlichman thought it was quite serious in addition lynn nofziger then a white house aide who knew caulfield well remembered that shortly after his meeting with colson caulfield spoke with nofziger about the plan and says he expressed shock that colson would make such a suggestion Nossiger says he told Caulfield not to follow Colson's directive. Although Colson's plan was not carried out, Ulasewicz visited the institution, at Caulfield's direction, from Dean, to determine the location of offices, security provisions, and so on. This cursory surveillance was done at about the time Dean went to California to see Ehrlichman. D. Yim Cable Incident Another White House investigation involved an effort to tie President Kennedy to the 1963 assassination of South Vietnamese President Ngo Dien Nhiem. Colson contended to Hunt that President Kennedy, a Catholic, had implicitly condoned the assassination of another Catholic head of state, Ngo Diem, of Vietnam. Such a theory had some political consequences if Senator Kennedy decided to run for president in 1972. Moreover, any Democratic candidate in 1972 might have suffered diminished popularity among the Catholic voters if such history were accepted. 
Early in his employment as a White House consultant, E. Howard Hunt testified that he was instructed by Charles Colson to become the White House's, quote, resident expert on the origins of the Vietnam War, unquote. Hunt proceeded to steep himself in the history of the Vietnam War, particularly the assassination of Yem. In his capacity as a White House official, Hunt interviewed some CIA sources, including retired Colonel Lucien Conine, an Indochina expert. David Young obtained access for Hunt to State Department secret cables from during the war to determine if there were any bias in the selectivity of the cables quoted in the Pentagon Papers. However, Hunt testified that he had a different assignment from Charles Colson, and that Colson stressed the need to Hunt of finding documentation to show, quote, that it was not the Nixon administration that got us involved in Indochina in the first place, unquote. Hunt succinctly characterized what Colson wanted to show with the cables as follows. I believe it was desired by Mr. Colson, or at least some of his colleagues, to demonstrate that a Catholic U.S. administration had, in fact, conspired in the assassination of a Catholic chief of state of another country. Hunt testified that he displayed the secret cables to Colson, explaining that they laid a strong, but inconclusive, case regarding Kennedy administration culpability in the Yem death. Hunt noted that certain cables appeared to be missing from the group he had been given, and so there was no hard evidence linking the Kennedy administration with the assassinations of Yem and his brother-in-law. Hunt characterized the ensuing conversation with Colson as follows. Well, he, Colson, said, do you think you could improve on that? And I, Hunt, said, yes. I said, I would need some technical assistance. I can't do a forgery on my own that will stand up. He said, what would you need? I said, possibly the Secret Service could help me. I would need typefaces and that sort of thing. I said, I could prepare a credible text of plausible text or set of texts myself. But then we would run up against the typewriter problem. He said, well, this is too sensitive. We couldn't approach the Secret Service for that. You would have to do this all on your own. Why don't you see what you can do? So, as I have stated in other forums, I set about with a razor blade and a paste pot and in effect produced two spurious cables. Hunt testified he later returned to Colson's office with the spurious cables, where Colson told him that the cables would be made available to a journalist. In September 1971, Colson contacted Life magazine investigative reporter William Lambert and mentioned to him the possible existence of the Yem cables. Hunt met with Lambert in late September and showed him the forged cables but, at Colson's instructions, refused to allow Lambert to keep or photocopy them. For some time after this meeting, Lambert says he pressed Colson and Hunt for the original documents and interviewed numerous people in an attempt to confirm their authenticity. Finally, on April 28, 1973, Charles Morin, one of Colson's law partners, returned one of Lambert's calls. Lambert says that Morin told him the cable was a fake. Despite Morin's assertion, when Lambert met with Colson and his attorney the next day, Lambert said Colson denied ever seeing the forged cables and refused to confirm that some of them were forged. In addition to contacting Lambert, 
hunt says that colson also instructed him to show the entire set of cables including the forgery to colonel lucian conine conine at the time was preparing to participate in a television documentary on the origins of the vietnam conflict and it was quote colson's desire for mr conine to draw the conclusion that in fact the kennedy administration had been responsible implicitly responsible for the assassination of em unquote. colson and conine talked earlier on the telephone with hunt participating about the fact that president kennedy himself a catholic had in fact his administration and he implicitly had authorized the assassination of another catholic and thus would have some impact on the catholic vote in the subsequent election if there should be a kennedy involved in the election even if edward kennedy were not the democratic candidate hunt said quote, the fabrication was intended to alienate the catholic vote unquote. e itt and ditta beard columnist jack anderson reported on february twenty ninth nineteen seventy two the existence of the now famous ditta beard itt memorandum alleging that a $400,000 contribution to the Nixon campaign was tied to a favorable ruling by the Justice Department on ITT's antitrust problems. Concern about the document within the White House led to a number of activities, including clandestine investigations. Immediate administration reaction to the Anderson article was twofold. First, a White House action group of political and press advisors was assigned to set out the administration's public position and course of conduct in reaction to the allegations. And secondly, investigations were undertaken to determine the origin, accuracy, and authenticity of the Beard Memorandum. The White House public relations explanation of the ITT incident was extensive and will not be fully covered in this report. Nearly daily strategy meetings were held, which included Richard Moore, Charles Colson, John Dean, Bill Timmons, John Ehrlichman, Fred Fielding, and Wally Johnson. This group's responsibilities included preparing daily press briefing materials and developing a strategy for the upcoming Kleindienst confirmation hearings. The White House investigation of the ITT affair was two-pronged. Charles Colson conducted a review of internal White House contacts, correspondence, and memorandums to determine possible culpability of various persons in any possible wrongdoing surrounding administration-ITT interaction. This investigation led to the celebrated Colson-ITT memorandum to H.R. Haldeman. Second, Howard Hunt and personnel from some government agencies were used to investigate individuals related to the actual publication of the memo. The Colson ITT memorandum is divided into two parts. The first section discusses briefly the ongoing public relations effort to minimize the political impact of the Beard memorandum. The second portion of Colson's memorandum details the administration involvement in the ITT antitrust settlement and the possible relation of the settlement to a campaign contribution promise. This second portion outlines the findings of Colson's internal investigation into White House misconduct in the ITT matter. Colson's findings were significant. The documents discovered in his investigation, Colson concluded, could, quote, undermine or contradict, unquote, previous testimony of administration officials. 
colson determined that one document quote, would once again contradict mitchell's testimony and more importantly directly involve the president unquote. the first sentence of the investigative portion of colson's memorandum implied that an attempt to suppress white house involvement had been underway for some time certain itt files which were not shredded have been turned over to the sec there was talk yesterday in the committee of subpoenaing these from itt further colson acknowledged the existence of an important document relevant to the sec investigation but concluded quote, we believe that all copies of this have been destroyed unquote. colson's memorandum also summarized the extent of knowledge various administration figures had about itt neither kleindienst mitchell nor mardian know of the potential dangers i have deliberately not told kleindienst or mitchell since both may be recalled as witnesses and mardian does not understand the problem only fred fielding myself and ehrlichman have fully examined all the documents and or information that could yet come out rather than disclose to law enforcement authorities or other concerned agencies what colson's investigation had uncovered the white house conducted further investigations of non-white house figures involved in the itt matter robert mardian testified that g gordon liddy told him he transported itt lobbyist beard away from washington d c after the infamous memo was published subsequently colson dispatched e howard hunt to denver colorado where mrs beard was in a hospital to interview her about the origin and authenticity of her memorandum white house congressional liaison wallace johnson helped colson and hunt on the ditta beard project as hunt explained i was referred by him colson to mr wallace johnson who was the gentleman who actually dispatched me on the mission and prepared the aid memoir from which i talked subsequently to mrs beard money was then provided for the trip from campaign funds held by g gordon liddy following hunt's interview with her mrs beard issued a statement claiming that the famous memo was a fraud this statement was written by bob bennett hunt's employer at mullen and company some government agencies were also used in the white house investigation for instance acting fbi director patrick gray transmitted a copy of the beard memorandum to white house counsel john dean the memorandum obtained in the fbi investigation was subsequently used by hunt in his interview of beard the white house was also curious about the relationship between mrs beard and a secretary for columnist jack anderson john martin of the internal security division isd of the department of justice said that he interviewed various people on the subject at the request of robert mardian former head of isd and charles colson f the plan for an investigation of arthur bremer on may fifteenth nineteen seventy two alabama governor george c wallace then a contender for the presidency was shot and seriously injured during a campaign speech in maryland e howard hunt testified that charles colson called him into his office the morning following the assassination attempt and told hunt that wallace's assailant had been identified as arthur bremer of milwaukee wisconsin Colson said that the press, quote, had trampled through his, Bremer's, apartment, unquote, and suggested that Hunt should go through the apartment to survey the contents. Colson explained to Hunt the purpose of the assignment as follows. 
in the past when mr kennedy was assassinated when jack ruby was killed and when martin luther king was killed it was all immediately blazoned as a right-wing plot of some sort we would like to know what kind of kook this guy is what has he got up there in the way of literature is he a neo-nazi hunt concluded quote, i think that the thrust of that effort was to determine his political orientation or some motivation for what he did unquote. when initially confronted with the assignment hunt says he strenuously protested and explained that the apartment was probably staked out or legally sealed by this time hunt testified that colson then implied that a break-in could elude the stakeout and provide revealing information finally according to hunt colson cancelled the entire operation end of section twelve recording by warren cotty gurney illinois